Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning, church. Good morning. Oh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. What a blessing to be back. And always a privilege and an honor to really share any pastor's pulpit, uh, but especially our Pastor Rick. And I hope that he and his family are having a great time. Hi, Pastor Rick, if you're watching. But this is a real blessing for us today. Man, it just, uh, sometimes it's, can be hard to feel like Christmas, you know, and it's been a tough year, and so many of you have perhaps been on the struggle bus, I call it. I hope that the Lord will just love on you this morning and reaffirm to you that He keeps His promises. Amen. He's good for His Word. A very special invitation was extended to the humble shepherds living out in the fields. Luke's gospel, chapter 2, reads, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now these shepherds had an idea where to look, but how would they know their Savior when they saw him? The angel said, This will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, I really want to point out first that these are Levitical shepherds. The sheep that they watch over in Bethlehem are specifically dedicated for sacrifice, not for food, for sacrifice. They would have identified swaddling cloths, right? This is just a series of fabric tied together, wrapped around a baby. But also keep in mind, the shepherds are not midwives. They're not OBGYN physicians, all right? But they're very familiar with the births of baby lambs, which was customary for these lambs specifically to be wrapped in swaddling cloths. So they knew what that looked like, and they certainly knew what a manger looked like, because the word manger is not like a barn or a cave, but a feeding trough specifically. So they, they knew that they should be looking for a baby in swaddling cloths placed in an animal's feeding trough. So we have Christ Jesus, a little baby, wrapped in this tight, you know, bands of fabric. Again, common practice in the first century. In addition, he would be lying in an animal's feeding trough. And so the shepherds came, they saw and they went, it says, glorifying God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. I like to emphasize, as it was told them. Praise God for his faithfulness to his word. So these shepherds looked for a sign given them, and it happened just as, just as it was promised to them. Are you looking for a sign today? Maybe you have some decisions to make, and you're just wondering what to do. If so, did this sign come from God? Did it come from his messengers? Did it come from scripture? Or is your sign some sort of stipulation placed on God? We do that sometimes, right? I invite you to stand with me. We'll read Luke's gospel, chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. If you're able... <laughs> 
I read from a New King James Version, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of her, her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Father God, may you bless the reading and the hearing and the doing of your word. We pray for your supernatural insights, Lord, to understand what it is that you have put on the heart of Dr. Luke to share with us in his gospel. But Lord, let us leave this place today with more than an intellectual experience, but with an encounter with the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The Bible is filled with signs. That word signs literally is a signal or a token, drawing our attention to something or someone in particular. For example, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, you may have heard this around this Christmas time. God promised the sign of a virgin who would conceive and bear a son called Emmanuel, or God with us. The shepherds, the shepherds were given the sign of a Messiah, swaddled and placed in a feeding trough. Here we see Jesus circumcised, which is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, signifying a very special relationship with the God named Yahweh, or the I Am, the Eternal One. As required in the Law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 12, eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child. This is a sign that God just knows what he's talking about. Absolutely. It's scientifically proven that newborn males' blood is most likely to clot on the eighth day after childbirth. The amount of prothrombin, it's a protein that's created in the liver, is more than 100% the normal amount. 
on the eighth day. It's the only day in a male's life this will be naturally possible. During my first two years in the Navy, from 1992 to 94, I worked as a hospital corpsman in labor and delivery. I helped participate in over 450 births of, of children. And uh, after the baby boys were born, it was customary for those being circumcised that we would give them vitamin K injections if they were going to be circumcised because the circumcision would usually, it would usually happen before the eighth days. It would happen a couple days after childbirth. And so again, this circumcision on the eighth day, a sign for us that God just knows what he's talking about. And then his name was called Jesus in verse 21. Now, many boys and men in the first century were named Jesus. This wasn't abnormal. In Hebrew, it's pronounced Yahshua or Yahushua. We might pronounce it Joshua. So if you're here today and your name is Joshua or you're watching, it's a very special name. In Greek, it's Iesus or we may know Jesus, you know. What's significant about this Jesus, this particular Yahshua, are the signs surrounding this Jesus. His name was prescribed by an angel to his mother, who was a virgin, before she even conceived baby Jesus. He was declared to be the son of God, destined to reign as king forever and ever, savior over the house of David forever. And his name literally means Yahweh is salvation. Yah, the I am, Shua, salvation. That is quite a resume. Not every Joshua has that resume. And I wonder about Mary and Joseph. I think they had to be losing their minds because this is not the typical newlywed experience, Joseph and Mary. The things happening to them really didn't mean that they were crazy. These were signs that God was doing something amazing. And what I love about Joseph and Mary is that they simply remained faithful to God. They made sure that Jesus was circumcised. Later, they're found in the temple offering the customary sacrifices while presenting Jesus as firstborn males were supposed to be dedicated to the Lord, holy to the Lord. Many Jewish women hoped and prayed that their baby boys would be the Messiah. And yet here is humble Mary, obedient Joseph, dedicating Jesus of Nazareth. Again, per the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 12, they really should have offered a lamb as they went to the temple. They would offer a lamb as a burnt offering and then uh, one turtle dove or a pigeon as a sin offering. And if they couldn't afford a lamb, they would offer a pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons, which is what they did. And to me, this is another sign. This is evidence that the wise men had not yet arrived because had they arrived, we understand the Magi probably came about two years after Jesus was born. And what did they bring with them? Gold frankincense, and myrrh. They probably would have had enough gold to afford 
a lamb and a pigeon. And instead, they were so poor, they offered up two, either two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Again, very significant for us. Because I want you to notice how perfectly God orchestrated all of this. Jesus is the Lamb of God. So they did bring a lamb to the temple after all. This is also a great lesson for us here. It was while Joseph and Mary were being obedient to God's word as faithful Jews in the temple of God that Simeon was able to see his Savior. Look in verses 25 and 28. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so the sign promised Simeon is that he would see the Messiah before he died. He literally saw God's salvation. Not an event, but a person. While Joseph and Mary were simply practicing their religion frequently in God's house, it was there in the temple where Simeon saw Jesus, and he just knew. He just knew. And so taking up Jesus in his arms, it says he blessed God. And this is what he said in verses 29 to 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Again, literally just looking at Jesus, cradling this baby in his arms. Which you have prepared before the face of all peoples a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon was so delighted to have seen God's salvation in the shape and form of this little person, this little baby boy, probably just a peanut at that point. This person God prepared for all peoples. Not just Israel, all peoples. The Gentiles means the nations. Very significant for a Jew to make a statement like that in the first century. Jewish men and women were not to associate with the Gentiles. And yet this Messiah destined for Israel and the world for that matter. In fact, the Messiah, this Messiah would change the world. Like the shepherds who praised God for all the things that they had seen and heard just as it was told them, even so, Simeon could rest in peace because everything had happened just as God promised. I wonder if Joseph and Mary were thinking to themselves, who is this stranger holding my baby? (laughs) Who is this guy, Simeon? It could be possible that Simeon was a priest. Perhaps he was just the priest on duty that day. And he was the guy that was going to officiate this dedication service. But it says in verses 33, they marveled at those things which were spoken of him. This should really encourage us parents. Because as Joseph and Mary... Like most parents, I think, we're simply learning on the go. How many of you guys here have 
have kids. I've seen some kiddos here this morning. Yeah. At some point, if you're like me, Laura and I, you kind of say to yourself, wow, you know, my parents really just were learning on the go. Because you realize you're learning on the go. Like you just don't know everything. And we make a lot of mistakes. And we need a lot of grace. And we go to the scriptures and there's a lot to, you know, to find in the word of God. And, and yet there's just a lot of things we just learn on the go. And I think we can take comfort from the life of Joseph and Mary. But it also goes to show that things don't always happen as we hope they would happen for our kiddos. In verse 34, Simeon goes on to say, behold, it means like, check it out. Look, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Simeon sees Christ for himself, literally looking at and holding God's salvation personified. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy given to him. And then he prophesies of our Lord's destiny, his death and resurrection. Notice here in the text, he didn't say Jesus is destined for the rise and fall of many. Not for the rise and fall of many in Israel. Jesus was destined for the fall and the rising. There's a difference in that. Those of us who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we follow his lead. We repent. We turn to him. We confess him as Lord. But we've been baptized into his death. We've fallen into our shallowy grave and we've been raised anew born again in Christ, which really interesting here, and I hope you can see that on the slide, is this word rising is the Greek word anastasis. It looks like anastasis, or if you've ever heard of someone being named Anastasia, it means the resurrection. Beautiful name. Anastasis. Of the 42 times Anastasis is used in the New Testament. It always refers to the resurrection. This is one of those, and I'm not a King James only guy, but this is where I think the King James says it more clearly because it says that he's destined for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. And so, you know, can you imagine Joseph and Mary hearing these words? It says they marveled. At it. They're just wondering, what does this mean? But Jesus' fall and rising would be a sign which will be spoken against, he says. A sign which will be spoken against. Friends, the gospel is offensive. The cross and the resurrection, in case you haven't noticed, maybe you've shared this with some friends or coworkers. And families especially, if they're not on board already, it's hard, man, because they're going to look at you perhaps like you are crazy. Like what you're saying is foreign to them. But don't lose heart because some of them have never heard the gospel before. I had never heard the gospel till I was 17 years old. And I had questions. I didn't immediately get on board and pray this prayer of faith or find myself baptized and in a church. I interrogated my poor coworker for about three days with questions I really needed answers to. 
And he was so faithful to go back to the scriptures. Never talked to me about his pastor. Never invited me to sit in his pews or to join his denomination. He simply shared with me Jesus. And he answered my questions from the scriptures, which build my confidence in the word of God. What a blessing. The gospel is offensive to those who want to stand in their own self-righteousness before God. Paul the Apostle said, 1 Corinthians 1.18, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In fact, Simeon said in verse 35, This sign would pierce Mary's soul. This sign would pierce Mary's soul. The thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. The gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the sign that leads us to the moment of decision. It reveals our intents. It exposes our motives And the question for us is, will we trust God's gift of salvation in Jesus Christ? Or will we reject him instead and stand before God on judgment day in our own self-righteousness, which won't be righteous enough? In fact, if you are are good enough, then perhaps Jesus died for everybody but you. And we know that's not the case. It's impossible. So, there are a lot of good people in the world. Like we, we have people in our lives, I do, where I say, yeah, I love that guy. He's good people. But I'm not saying he's saved and he's reconciled with God. I'm just saying in terms of earthly human skill, he's a good dude, right? But none of us will be good enough in God's sight because the moment we act or open our mouths, like we're just, our starting point is criminals in the sight of God. We are just so antagonistic. At, you know, to God and to the things of God. That's our starting point. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. You think about today and looking for signs. I think so many people are looking for signs and tokens or sim- symbols, signals of God's power, His saving power. And they want to know if God is real. But friends, God has given them the cross, and he's given us the empty tomb. Amen? In fact, the next, the next time this word sign is used again in the New Testament, it's in Luke chapter 11, verse 16, when Jesus cast out a demon, and he actually healed a man. And you know what the people said in response? Can you give us some sort of sign <laughs> that you're the Messiah? I mean, bewildered. Not by the fact that this man was now standing before them whole, but wondered, who are you to do these kinds of things? And you know what Jesus said in Luke 11, that same chapter, same context, Luke 11, 29 to 30. He says, you know, I don't, I don't know if he shook his head, but I'm, imagine, I'm imagining our Jesus like, hmm. He says, this is an evil generation. This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign 
And no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. As Jonah was as good as dead in the belly of the fish for three days, and then seen again alive and well, even so Jesus' death three days in the tomb and following resurrection would be the only sign given to those who insist on a sign. The cross and the resurrection, man, it pierces our souls and it reveals our thoughts and hearts before God. Let's keep reading verse 36. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Now, Keep in mind, when our Bibles were written, there were no chapters, there are no verses, and so mine is broken up with these headers. Simeon sees God's salvation. And then verses 36 to 38, Anna bears witness to the Redeemer. But keep in mind, this gospel, it just flows. And the best way to interpret scripture is in context. And it's while Simeon took baby Jesus in his arms and blessed him and prophesied of his destiny, that Luke says that this woman, Anna, who was a very old woman, a widow, could have remarried again and moved on in her life, and yet she's found every day in the temple. And what is she known for? Just being a faithful, godly, praying, fasting person. And Luke says that this woman, Anna, was... Coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Anna walks in, and literally her sign is one of opportunity. I mean, she's able to enjoy that simple, profound, supernatural moment. Because she was just faithful to be in the temple, worshiping and serving God regularly. I'm hoping that you're seeing a pattern here. It seems to me that those who want to see God end up seeing him. Those who end up seeing him are really those who are humble and lowly people like the shepherds. Those who are just and devout and waiting on God's promises, like Simeon. Those who are consistent and committed to serving him, like Anna. Also, those who are like Joseph and Mary, who simply marveled at the things they heard about Jesus. When was the last time you marveled at the the things you've heard about Jesus. I mean, we have Bibles in our laps. We have Bibles on our phones. We have Bibles on our 
coffee tables and our bookshelves, and we read and we, or we listen, whatever, whatever the venue. When was the last time you, when was the last time I marvel at the word of God? God help us. It seems to me those who really want to see the Lord are more inclined to see them when they're humble, when they're looking, when they're faithful, when, they're going, when we're going, in their case, going to temple, when we're going to church. Pick up in verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Again, if anything can be said of Joseph and Mary, they were faithful to keep God's word. And while parents, man, we try. <laughs> we try, man. We provide the best that we can for our kids, right? The truth is, and you know this, especially if you have older kids, all right? Our oldest being 25. We know this to be true, that children will decide for themselves what they will do and how they will respond. No matter how good or not so good parents you are, those other humans that have lived in our home, man, they're going to grow up to make their own decisions and be their own kind of persons. That's just the way it is. That said, with regard to Jesus, look at what it says. The child grew and became strong in the spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Mind you, Luke, not even a Jew, mind you. You look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke, a Gentile author, certainly wasn't there with Mary. So he's getting all of this, we understand, through tradition, probably from people like Mary and those who grew up with Jesus and from the apostles. Luke wants us to know, the people who tell Jesus' story, tell Luke that Jesus grew and he became strong in the spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Friends, if Jesus had to grow, if he had to become strong in the spirit and filled with wisdom, I'm not saying he's not God and not perfect, but in his humanity, he was still able to grow and learn. He was filled with wisdom. If that was the case for Jesus, how can we expect otherwise of ourselves? Physical, emotional, spiritual growth is a process. And the truth is that our maturity, it has to be cultivated. It has to be developed. Overall, I think we need what Jesus modeled, and that's God's grace upon us. If you're married here today, you know by now you need God's grace upon you. Lots of grace, man. Lots of mercy. If you have a roommate, if you have siblings, you need grace. If you're not, you know, if you're going to live with each other, right? So what can we learn about God from this passage? When I look at scripture, 
Even in my own personal devotional times, there are always three questions I try to ask myself just so I don't read it, you know, in my sleepy stupor in the morning and my first cup of coffee and I read the Psalms and then I close the book and walk away sometimes to forgetful of what it is I just read. I ask myself three questions. What can I learn about God? What can I learn about myself from this text? And what does God want me to do? So I, I want us to apply these questions today. What is it we can learn about God from this passage? God wants to reveal himself to us. Absolutely. Especially his son. If we want to know the Father, we've got to know Jesus. God wants us to know him, and he wants us to know his son, Jesus. We also know that God is inclined to reveal himself to those who are humble and lowly like the shepherds, to those who are just and devout and waiting on God's promises like Simeon, to those who are consistent and committed to serving him like Anna, to those who marvel at Jesus like Joseph and Mary. We know that God himself is humble and lowly, coming in the likeness of mankind, born under meager conditions. Think of this. We are monotheistic. That means we believe in one God. Amen? Okay. Isn't it good news to know that there being one God, that this one God is absolutely pure and righteous. He is judge. He will hold us accountable, but he is also slow to anger and just so cool with himself that while he transcends the universe and is everywhere at once, is good with becoming so small, like in entering our world. That just blows my mind, the fact that God would become so small. I'm too proud for that. You know, I would never become an ant to communicate with other ants and get squished. You know, I just, I, I wouldn't. I don't know, I don't think I have that. I don't want to think too highly of myself to think I would do that. But God himself is humble and lowly, coming in the likeness of mankind, born under meager conditions. And another thing I really love about him is that he keeps his promises. And he's committed to convincing us that he does that. What can we learn about ourselves? I'm really curious to hear like, what you are learning about God from this passage. I'm not going to you know, pass around the microphone. Um, I'm just going to share personally what I'm getting from this text. What I learn about myself from this text is that sometimes I'm inclined to look for signs of my own imagination. Remember the story of Gideon? And this is a man literally talking with God in human form, right? Eventually he finds out that he's talking to the pre-incarnate Christ. And the Lord tells him, you mighty man of valor, like go and do great things. God is with you. And yet he still lays out his fleece, you know? In the morning, if it's wet all around and the fleece is dry, then I know. Then I know, Lord, I can do it. And, oh, okay, Lord, please don't be mad at me. But this time, how about the, tomorrow morning I'll put it out and the fleece will be wet, but the ground all around it will be dry. And then I'll really know. And the Lord is just patient with knuckleheads. This guy and Gideon and 
and you too, perhaps, not calling you a knucklehead, but we, we're all knuckleheaded at some point or another. But some, sometimes I'm inclined to look for signs of my own imagination instead of simply trusting God and the signs he's already provided. If you're at that fork in the road and you're wondering what to do, like you say, I just don't know what to do. Do what you know. If you don't know what to do, do what you know. A great starting point is like, go back. Go back to the word of God. Do what you know God wants you to do. I also learned that sometimes, you know, I'm not humble and lowly, but I'm proud and insecure, and I'm not waiting on God's promises, and I'm inconsistent. On the other hand, I learned that sometimes I get to be a blessing to somebody when I am humble enough to be in step with the Lord and walk with him. And there's just something powerful and humbling about, you know, being used by God in any way, shape, or form, you know? Finally, what does God want us to do? He wants us to be Humble, lowly, yet confident in what and in whom we know to be true. I wrote myself a little note because this morning we sang the song. In the lyrics, we says, as I draw near, reveal yourself. Boom. Like that's, if you leave here with anything today, you got it before the sermon even started, right in our praise and worship. As we draw near, Lord, Reveal yourself. Show us who you are. Lord, that's what God wants us to do. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. The Bible there even says that, right? Rejoice. God wants us to rejoice when we see things happen just as he foretold. I remember hearing the gospel for the first time. And the gentleman sharing with me was the, butch, the butcher in a grocery store where I worked. And... Uh, he didn't know my home dynamic or situation. But he shared the words of Jesus when he says, don't think I came to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword. And we know he's talking about his word. He says, I came to turn you know, father against son, mother against daughter, and father-in-law against son-in-law, and so on. He says, and those of your own household will be your enemy. But if you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me, you know? I remember going home and sharing with my, my mom and uh, my sister, my stepdad, that I was born again. I wasn't even going to church, right? I had just made this decision after praying a prayer, a prayer confessing Jesus as Lord in a pickup truck, I was, that I was following Jesus. And my family's initial response was like, wish you were never born, you know, this is, this is horrible as far as they knew, you know, because the, the religion that, that we had as a family was the kind that says that, you know, we belong to the church. So the fact that, you know, this young punk can just pray a prayer in a pickup truck and say, Lord, you're Lord, I want to walk with you. Um, that doesn't set well with people who are very religious and trying to earn their way, you know. But the more they kind of hated on me 
and rejected me in my newfound faith, the more excited I got because I was like, I'd go back to work and be like, Martin, my family doesn't like me anymore. They're so mad at me, man, but it's okay because you shared with me in the word of God how Jesus said that my family, you know, that they'll take it that way. So it's okay. And, I, and you know, it took the edge off. I wasn't mad at my mom. I wasn't mad at my sister, you know. It was just so exciting to see the word of God coming to life. What else does God want us to do? He wants us to tell others about the redemption and the consolation in Christ. He wants us to know the gospel and the cross will be offensive. It will. Many people won't like what we have to say and what the gospel stands for. But he wants us to grow and to become strong in the spirit like Jesus, to grow, to be filled with wisdom and have the grace of God upon us. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you for keeping your promises and just being so kind. Lord, help us to see the signs that you've provided us to realize our need for a Savior, Lord. Help us to, to long not just for reform or behavior modification, but may we be genuinely changed, Lord, with an everlasting change from the inside out. And Father God, help us to encounter Christ Jesus. Help us to be humbled by the realization, Lord, that the creator of the universe you want to reveal yourself to us, Lord. May we be confident, Father, that you are the only one who can satisfy our longing, the consolation, the redemption that we've been hoping for. Amen. Thank you, friends.